couple couple notes. Kai and uh, Hannah, that was a great solo. You sing like three times better than your dad ever did. I'm serious. If you ever heard Craig sing, it was rough. Um, secondly, not only was the choir impressive, but the light team. Just wanted to shout out to them. I just took it to the next level. So thank you um, for that. I couldn't find Will Brown either. I kept trying to pick him out in the crowd. Dude, the kid is 6'8". Do you know how little of a man I feel like walking down the hallway? Morning, Will. It's ridiculous. But anyway, uh, it was a blessing. I, the thing is, when you're a teacher and you're a Christian, and I know Carol can attest to this, you pray uh, that you can somehow uh, bless and minister to the students that you have in class. You come out of college and you're all about your subject matter, and man, I'm going to light the world on fire and teach all about American history and all of that. And then at some point you realize... That's not really why God has you there. And so you have the desire to minister. And then you come on a morning like this, and they minister the way they did to you. It's just, it's really cool. Like I, um, <laughs> I did, like during the girls' choir, that uh, second song, the one about um, a thousand sleepless nights. Yeah, that one, thanks. Um, I'm getting emotional sitting there, and Jenny's looking at me. Just pull yourself together, man. But it's, uh, it was just great. So um, thank you for that. All right, so let's, uh, let's get started here. Thrill-seeking. Thrill-seeking is a now multi-billion dollar industry. If you look around the world, everybody is desperate for thrills, even people that aren't really made for thrills. Roller coasters are made, and there's always the next park that's trying to make the biggest one, the longest one, the fastest one. You have people who have the money. The roller coasters don't do it for them. And so what they do is they give money to Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk and say, take me up into low Earth orbit. I'd like to go on a rocket with you. And even those of us that can't afford that, we go to places like Rainforest Cafe. I mean, have you stopped to think about what that is? That the ultimate dining experience is to wander around in this weird rainforest-like building until they announce, Hex Safari of Five, your adventure now begins. This is supposed to be a pleasant dinner, and what have we made it? We want to go to a dinner where we have these mechanical auto-animatronics apes screaming at us as we're eating our... Have you stopped to think what... And there's like a thunderstorm every 18 minutes, and that's a pleasant evening. Why? Because we're looking for a thrill. And even people, where it's, the, the obsession is so great that even people, like I said, who are not made for thrills. There are people who are thrill junkies, and there are those of us that that just isn't our thing, but we get sucked in. We get drug in like this is something we're supposed to do. There is a video that has been making its rounds, and you are going to see it now if you have not yet. This poor girl, these people are from Indiana. You ever seen, like, at those places, it's, it's almost like this, the pull-off on the side of the road in Orlando, uh, the, the makeshift amusement parks where they have the catapult, where they pull the human beings back with this giant rubber band, and then they let them go. This poor girl obviously got talked into doing this, but she's trying to act tough. Now, I had to edit this, so there's places where the volume will go out. She comes in and out of consciousness like three or four times. I want you to look at her face as she comes out of uh, unconsciousness and she sees where she is. This is the most glorious thing I have ever seen in my entire life. Could we have the clip, please? Oh, my God. 
not, do, not doing this again. Um, okay, so I watched this clip like five or six times, and I can't place it. I can't figure out what it is that stands out at me, and then I realized, I got a, a still shot. Is this not Grace Van Bibber? <laughs> is that not Grace? That's, uh, yes, that's glorious, Grace. So proud of you. Grace is a student of mine, and she deserves that. It really does. Every time I give an assignment, that's her face right there. Anyway, okay, look. Speaking of students, teaching has become like this. Who are the favorite teachers? The ones that make their subject matter exciting. That's what it is. That's, what, that's the classes students want to go to. There's a reason that Carol Evenson has 300 junior high kids packed into her classroom at the end of every day. There's a reason that 100 kids want to be in the musical every year because the woman is a nut and she's excited about what she's doing. I mean that with all... Yes, anyway... <laughs> And everybody wants to be in that classroom. We crave this excitement. The best teachers are the excited ones. You know all of this. It's everywhere. To keep life from becoming boring, we always are looking for astonishment. We always want to be in awe. We always want to find something. Uh, Greentown, in the years past, um, every spring break, it was the weirdest thing. Like the entire town would just move and migrate down to Panama City. It was like Greentown South for a week. Why? Because we want to change it. We're in this boring, rural, cold town, and we want to go down to the exciting Panama City Beach. And what do people who live in the big cities do? For their vacations, they want to change their scenery, and they want to go to the rural mountains. We need to change our scenery, and why? This is the point I want you to get. Familiarity is the enemy of excitement and awe and wonder. When you become overly familiar with something, it's a danger in a marriage, it's all of these things. Familiarity becomes the enemy of excitement and awe and wonder. And Jerome Church, this is what I'm trying to get across to you. It's where we've been. I think this is where many of us are with our faith. That we are so familiar with it that we have lost the excitement, we have lost the awe, we have lost the wonder. If you're visiting with us, just so you have a, a basic background of where we've been, first of all, great to have you. But what we've been talking about this year to this point, and what we'll be talking about for weeks and weeks to come, our mission as Christians, and Jesus made it very clear there uh, when he gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28, the beginning of Acts, our mission is to make disciples. That is why you are on this earth, if you have surrendered to him. And I said, personally, I think I could be doing a lot better job. And I said that I believe that this church could be doing a lot better job if that is our mission. So what is it that holds it back? I think this is part of it. I, I, we, aren't, we aren't succeeding in our mission because it doesn't excite us. I, I, maybe that's bad to say, but I think that's it. We come here, but I don't know how many of us are actually excited about this and about proclaiming this to the rest of the world. It's doctrine. It's history. It's blah. And if you want excitement, you don't come to church because that's not really what church is. Jesus would have put it this way. You've lost your saltiness. That's the issue. Or what we talked about last week. You're not the bag of sand that is, is marketed for the sand filter or for the playground where it's worth something. It's not the sand in the microchip. You're the sand on the beach. The people just walk over. It's just a dime a dozen. It's just everything else. It's blah. Jesus warned a particular church about this happening to them. If you got your Bibles, and those of you know it's now printed where you need to be for the week, we're in Revelation chapter 2. If you go to Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is speaking here to a church. It's the church in Ephesus. And I want to show you what he says in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And you tell me if this is not us, if this is not you. He begins in verse 1, to the angel in the church in Ephesus, and by the way, I love this, angel means the minister, the leader of that church. If you all want to call me, it's okay, I'm not going to, 
To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's Jesus. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked men. And you have tested, you have tested uh, those, oh, where am I? You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. That sounds great. That's what I want to be. I'm somebody that tests people who are proclaiming truth against the word of God. I found them to be false. I'm rejecting them. I'm walking away from wickedness. I've been proving myself faithful. That's all great. And then you get to verse 4. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. These are believers who are good people. These are believers in the church in Ephesus who are doing good things. They have a great reputation, and Jesus is pointing that out. But here is the key, and I want us to realize this. If we do not love Jesus fervently, then we will not in the end serve him faithfully. If you do not love him fervently, if he is not your first love, if that is not what motivates you and drives you in everything that you do, in the end you will not prove faithful to him. Why? Because you will compromise his word for whatever it is that you love. You will cheat on his commands. You will wear the name, but without any cost. Whenever wearing the name of Jesus costs you something in the culture, you'll kind of move away from it. Because what do you first love? Not Jesus. That's exactly what he's saying is going to happen. The church in Ephesus, uh, if, you don't, if, if you don't know the history of the church in Ephesus, there are three forces that are working on the church in Ephesus, okay? You have the culture and the world around them. Ephesus is a big city, so think of like New York City, the multiculturalism and all of the different philosophies and beliefs and all the people, and the church is planted right there in the middle of it. So the outside forces are impacting the church in Ephesus. There's also forces that are working within their church, and there's forces working in the hearts of the individual believers in the church in Ephesus. That's what is leading them down this path that Jesus is warning them about. So if I'm right in saying that we are walking this path, we're dangerously close to this becoming us, where we do the right things, we say the right things, but we are not motivated by our first love anymore, maybe we ought to look and see how impacted we are by those things as well. What about the world and the culture? We live amid a shifting moral landscape. You can deny that if you want to, but we do. And by the way, what do I mean when I say a moral landscape? How we as a culture define what is right and wrong and good and bad. It has changed. You see, the Bible has a basic moral code that it says this is what is good and this is what, it's, what is bad. So you can live by this. This is your moral code. Okay, this is how you understand this. That's your moral landscape. And for a long time, culture used to be okay with this. They didn't believe all of this stuff. But the basic premise, the basic morality that was offered here, they were okay with. Well, things have obviously shifted. It is not that way anymore. The same Christian beliefs that have existed for 2,000 years, and I speak specifically about those Christian beliefs uh, relative to gender and sexuality. That's what we're dealing with right now. Those same beliefs that Christians, Orthodox Christians, have been espousing for 2,000 years, now all of a sudden in this culture have become extreme and offensive. To the spirit of the age, if you hold to Christian morality and Christian teaching on those things, it's offensive, it's extreme, you're a bigot. Get this, Christian morality is now viewed in the culture as immoral. 
I want you to make sure you're picking up on what's going on here because this is deception of the world. Christian morality is rejected because it isn't inclusive. It doesn't include everybody. It doesn't say that everybody's okay in what they do. And so the world rejects Christian morality because it's not inclusive, because it condemns the things that it calls immoral. And so we're not going to have that. The spirit of the age promises something better. We'll be more loving. We'll be more tolerant. We'll be more inclusive. And yet, what is the spirit of the age doing to people who hold to Christian morality? You get what's happening here, right? Oh, the spirit of the age, we're going to be so much more loving and tolerant. We're going to accept all people. Do they accept those that hold to Christian teaching? You see, this is the thing. Does the spirit of the age accept people with orthodox Christian beliefs? Do they accept and tolerate? Are they inclusive of those people? No. They condemn behavior as immoral too. They're doing the exact same thing that they blame Christians for doing. They have their own moral code, and they're attempting to to push it off onto the rest of society as well. It is exclusive to a certain group as well. This is a deceptive force that is acting on us. And do you know how many Christians fall for it? And why do they fall for it? Because they've forsaken their first love. That's why. It's exactly why it happens. We compromise. Some of us don't, but we get mad. And my question is why? Why do we get mad at this? I want you to flip back a couple books into 2 Timothy. Okay, this is Paul talking uh, to Timothy, who's his little protege. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is is unreal, okay? 2 Timothy chapter 3, the first nine verses here. I'm not going to read them all, but he's telling Timothy exactly what's coming, exactly what's going to happen. Look at what he says. I'll just kind of skim through this, starting in verse 2. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness. We've got a form of morality. We're pushing a morality and a moral code, but denying the actual power of God have nothing to do with them. That's what Paul says to Timothy. Instead, look at verses 10 through 17. You, however, you Christians, listen. Know, you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Listen, Christians, there is a time coming when the world will hate you and the world will attack you for your convictions. You will be ostracized. People will say nasty things about you on Facebook. They'll call you a bigot. All these things that you aren't, that's what the world is going to do. Remember what happened to me that's what they did to me they threw stones at me they threw me in prison but I haven't forgotten something look at verse the very next verse look at verse uh where was I 12 in fact everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted if you want to live a godly life amidst a culture that is ungodly you will be persecuted for your godliness which means those of us who are so desperate to avoid persecution By setting aside what we believe and not letting the world know, what is scripture telling us? You're not seeking a godly life. You're seeking to please that very world. 13, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When you lose your thrill and your passion for Christ, 
worldly persecution will sting differently. Do you notice Paul couldn't care less? Oh yeah, they beat me. They threw me in prison. They did all of those things. But God rescued me from all of it. I don't care what the world does to me. Why doesn't he care? That's terrible. He had an awful reputation amongst the people and the the spirit of their age. Why didn't he care? Because his first love is what he was pursuing. That's all he could see. But when you lose that, all of a sudden, what the world does to you matters more. The lure of being loved by the world, it tempts us and we're swayed by what the world says. And in a world where real Christianity is abnormal, where the word of God is offensive where Christian beliefs are regarded as immoral, what is the temptation? Tendency grows to abandon our first love. I worry about them. I really do. Because I know how influential worldliness and ungodliness is when they leave high school and they go to college. I know that world around them. And it's going to seem like, oh, this is the way to go. This is the way I want to be. I want to be accepted and I want to be. And they, and they think I'm going to walk away from this, uh, this exclusive view that I was raised with. And instead I'm going to embrace this. It's conformity to the world. And it's just as exclusive, just of a different group of people. But it's deception. And it so easily pulls people in. And the tendency, abandon your first love. James warned us about this. He says in chapter 4, verse 4, you, you adulterous people, don't you know friendship... Friendship with the world means enmity, that means opposition against God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So I'm going to suggest this to you, church. If we're choosing this, if we're desperate to be loved by the world and have its affections and have its attention, if we choose that, then we will necessarily become this. And if you're wondering why you're not successful in making disciples for Christ, it's because you're an enemy of God. And it's hard to make disciples for Christ when you have befriended the world. Compromise is not the great commission. we got to remember that. What's our choice? What is, what's our belief? Okay, so that's forces that are happening on the outside. What about the forces in the church? Well, what happens here? So many, and I don't mean this as an insult, but so many of the churches in the West, when I say and we believe that Christianity is waning or it's dying, it, it, I think it is in the West, in North America, in Europe. But you don't know anything about the Christian church if you think that it's dying. Go to South America. It's exploding. Go to Africa. It's sweeping the continent. Go to the Far East where it's under persecution in China. It's exploding. So yes, we have a cultural view of how Christianity is on the wane. But the church of Christ is on the move around the world. Okay? So many of our churches here are dormant and dying. They're boring. They're dry. They have no burning passion for the Lord. We've lost it. Familiarity has stripped it from us. And so what's the consequence? Because we don't have any passion, we're plagued by, oh, we've got to find something to do. So we bicker with each other. We have the stupidest arguments. Well, I'm not going to go and be with those people. I don't go to that church because this guy that goes there 13 years ago, he looked at me weird, admire. Okay, maybe he had something the night before and it was upsetting his stomach. You have no idea what's going on, but we do that. And those people go there and I don't want to have anything to do with them. I can't partner with them because yeah, we may say we love Jesus, but that's what we do. There's no forgiveness. There's resentment in the church of Jesus that's built on the idea of forgiveness. This is what, and then you get the high-profile scandals, and that damages us from the church side. You get Joel Osteen's opulence, which is embarrassing. 
to those that wear the name of Jesus, the huge mansion, and we're reading the gospel of Jesus that is about caring for the poor and giving of ourselves, and that's humiliating and embarrassing for Christians. And then Franklin Graham and all the good that he does with Samaritan's Purse, so many people look at that and say he's become politics first, and it turns them off. And then on the other side, you have all these progressive ministers and faith leaders that are deconstructing people from their original upbringing, and they're deconstructing them right into heresy. And then you've got Ravi Zacharias, the great Christian apologist. I had so many of his books, so many of his videos, and I loved it, and I loved to play video clips of him, and then he dies, and we find out this guy was a sexual deviant and a pervert, and he abused women, and to the point now that I don't even really want to tell people that I once read Ravi Zacharias, and you talk about abuse, the Southern Baptist Convention and those churches where people would be sexually abused by ministers or youth ministers, and then the church would handle it from within, and they keep everything quiet, and the victims were blamed for what happened, and all of this happens, and a lot of people just say, good riddance, I want to be done with it. I don't want to have anything to do with this anymore. And so they'll go and they'll start a home church. We'll just worship at home as a family. Or maybe this is a very common thing. I'm going to be missional. I'm not going to come to a church building every week. I'm just going to take Jesus uh, into the streets on my own. I'm going to live a commissional, uh, missional life. That's what I'm going to do. But inevitably, all of that's transitory. All of that is just decoupling their faith from the institution that Jesus created to make disciples. What is your mission, church? Your mission is to make disciples of Jesus. And Jesus made an institution for that very purpose. And what is that institution? It is the local church. And so when you say, and many people do this, when you say, I love Jesus, but I'm done with the church, what that is equal to is you saying, I love Jesus, but I am not going to obey his commands. And there's a problem with that. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So we've got a problem here, Christians. This is a reality. Now, what's happening with the individuals? I'll tell you, complacency is a threat. It's a threat for me. It's a threat for you. It leads us to abandon that first love that he's talking about. We file in here each week. We recite the same words, we sing the same tunes, and our hearts are unstirred by what we're confessing. I've told you this before, it has always irked me. Well, not always, it's really started to irk me in the last decade or so. If I go to a church service, or I'm at a church service, uh, or here at a church service, and somebody sings the song, God Bless the USA, on the 4th of July, or, or like 9-11... What happens? Man, you don't even get to the lakes of Minnesota before everybody is standing up. Everybody's standing. Why? Because their heart is swelling with pride and love for this great land. And look, I love America too. Nothing in comparison to what I think of the Father in heaven. And think of the words that we sang this morning. Think of the words that were sung up here. All my life you have been faithful. You have been so good in all of my conditions. And maybe we're feeling that heart swell, but it's not driving us to our feet it's not, it's not moving us in that way. We've lost that passion that we have. The gospel may mean good news. That's what the word means. But we don't feel it. You know how you act when you have good news. You can't wait to tell somebody the good news. Do we feel that way about the truth of salvation in Christ Jesus? And if we don't feel that way, we're not going to work to bring somebody else in to hear about it. Christianity becomes a sidebar in our life. It becomes part of what we do, not who we are. And that's a big problem. It will always lead to compartmentalizing. You know what compartmentalizing is? I think you do. 
You got a box for everything. This is my box for the church, and I'll come and see it on Sundays. And I got to do the churchy thing then. But then my career and job and, and my profession, and then I got my family, and then I got my hobbies, and I've got whatever other project it is, building great wealth, and my, it, it, what, I don't know, maybe I'm a prepper. I don't know what I am. I've got all of these other compartments over here. So my church compartment, and then my world compartment, and what happens? It's a dualistic worldview, the church part and the worldly part. If it's not who we are, but it's simply something that we do, what is the temptation going to be? We will do away with the aspects of our Christian walk that offend all of these other areas of our life. If it doesn't consume us and it's not who we are, then these parts of our life are not going to be affected by those offensive parts of the Word of God. That's exactly what is going to happen, and I'm going to tell you your usefulness, our usefulness to the kingdom of God hinges on us rejecting that temptation right there. To walk away from the aspects of... It's either who you are, or it's nothing at all. That's the, that, you don't believe me, flip one page back. Still in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, these are still Paul's words, and he's giving them to Timothy. Look in chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. These get me fired up. And if they don't, you just fake it. All right, here we go. Verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame... The gift of God. You fan it into flame, the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Verse 7. Gosh, I love verse 7. For God did not give us a spirit of fear or timidity. God didn't give you a spirit of fear. He gave you a spirit of power and of love, of a sound mind or self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, look at this, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through his gospel. And of this gospel I was pointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and that's it. That's what we said, Matthew 28. You have been appointed an, a, a herald of this gospel. That's our job, to herald exactly what he's talking about in these verses. Uh, where was I? Somebody tell me where I was. 12, thank you. That is why I am suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. I am not ashamed because I know where my confidence in my faith is. Why would I be ashamed of it? What can man do to me or say that can take that away from me? That's it. Compartmentalized Christianity is such a threat to our ability to fulfill our mission. And I'm going to tell you, I think it is a threat right here. I really do. I, I, it's my job to be honest with you, and I'm going to be. I think it is a curse right here, not just in this local body at Jerome. I think it's a curse in Christianity, in our community at large. So many of us will say, I believe in Jesus. Jesus works for me. Jesus works for our family. But who am I to tell someone else what they should believe? There's a lot of us that feel that way. Jesus works for me, and I'm so glad I've got him, and I trust his teaching, but who am I to tell people in other cultures that my beliefs are right? Doesn't that seem self-centered and egotistical? Uh, yeah, I love Jesus, and I believe in his words, but who am I to tell people that if they don't believe like me, they're going to go to hell? That's arrogant. That's what that is. Can I tell you? I'm going to be completely upfront and honest with you. I can identify with that feeling. I really can. I understand it. You're telling me that if I travel to India, okay, 
I don't know if any of you have been to India. A lot of people in India. You go to northern India. Okay, so if you think India half the size of the United States, so northern India, like a quarter of the size of the United States, so like the northeast, New England area. If I travel to that size of a country, okay, there's 600 million people in that little area. That's two times the size of the U.S. population. A lot of people up there. 0.5% are Christian. 0.5%. So you're telling me that I travel all the way over there, and I tell 600 million Hindus and Sikhs and Buddhists and Muslims, faithful Sikhs, faithful Buddhists, faithful Muslims and faithful Hindus, that they need Jesus to avoid hell. I'm telling you, I understand why people think that seems kind of egotistical. It feels arrogant. It feels, it feels unloving and it feels judgmental. It feels self-centered and egotistical to tell over half a billion people, you have to renounce your gods. You have to place faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by believing in his claims and repenting of your sins and being baptized into new life. I'm telling you, I get it. It feels arrogant and it would be arrogant. And it would be egotistical. And it would be the very definition of self-centered. Unless it's true. Unless it's true. Because if it's true, if Jesus really did live a sinless life, and if he really did die a substitutionary death, and if Jesus really did rise from the dead and walk out of that grave on the third day, and if Jesus alone has conquered sin and death and offered the only way of salvation for mankind, then going to the ends of the earth to proclaim it, no matter what men may do, is the only thing that makes sense. That's it. That's the only thing that makes sense. If it's all true, then what is truly unloving and what is truly arrogant and egotistical is to sit quietly knowing that truth and letting others perish. That's what, that's what arrogance is. You must truly hate people who are not like us if you are unwilling to do what Paul did. I'll sacrifice my very life to tell them this news. You can't compartmentalize a resurrected king and a resurrected savior. So where does that leave us? Here's what it is. Whatever it is that you're worshiping, this Jesus that you're worshiping, if you are capable of putting him in a box and eliminating the portions of that faith that offend all of these other parts of your life, if you can take this Jesus that you worship and you can keep parts out so that you can fit in with the world, if that's what you're doing, then I need you to understand you are not worshiping a resurrected Savior. and a res I don't know what it is that you're worshiping, this, this creation, this Jesus that you've created for yourself, but you cannot compartmentalize a resurrected king. can't be done. And so, what does that leave us with? If you believe this gospel, you will speak this gospel. And if you truly believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you will proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can't stop it. You can't help it. So, the very simple question that I have for you, this congregation, and those of us visiting this morning, very simple question. Do you believe? Do you believe that that is true? Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he was? That he came to this earth, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on a cross for our sins, that he was buried in a borrowed tomb, and three days later that stone rolled away and he walked forward in awesome power and majesty and he ascended to heaven and he intercedes at the Father's right hand on our behalf. Do you believe? If you do not, please keep searching, but quit pretending. You're not fooling anybody except yourself. Stop pretending. But if you do believe it, then Christians, we have work to do. 
And what a glorious opportunity it is. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the passion that your apostles had to proclaim it to the ends of the earth. And Father, we repent. Those of us who are your disciples, we repent for our lack of excitement. For us finding astonishment and awe in things of this world that will never last. That we're pursuing friendship with the world because we think somehow that will lead to a happier life. Father, forgive us. And may we reclaim our first love. Let it be this morning. Let it be in this community that your disciples will go out into the world and proclaim you to the very ends of the earth without shame and without hesitation. And in all things that we do, we give you the praise and you the honor and you the glory because you alone are worthy of it. We pray all this in the name of your Son, our risen and conquering Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Listen, I don't know if you want this morning to be the morning that you make that decision. You can come forward, confess him before men. We can baptize you here in the tub. We'll do it. And you're doing it. It's great. Maybe you want to transfer membership. Maybe you just need prayer. Maybe you're a believer, but you know you've been compartmentalizing. There's people in room eight. You can do that. Just go as we stand. But those of you that aren't going to do any of that stuff, decide this morning. Do you believe it? And if you do, make these words the cry of your heart and your soul this day.